Welcome to Happily Ever After is just the beginning. Keeping your relationship not just together, but happy, and we mean truly happy, is part art and part science. You've come to the right place. Here's your host, Leslie Dorries. There are really two main reasons that couples come to see me. The first one that we've talked about a lot on the show is poor communication. And the second one is they come in and they describe feeling like they've grown apart, they feel like they're roommates, or I'll hear the, I love my partner, I'm just not in love with them anymore. Somehow the magic has died. And I then get asked all the time if their sex life is normal. And what I want to tell them is that's the wrong question uh, because it doesn't really matter what anybody else's sex life is like. If you're not happy with yours, then it's a problem. But, you know, a lot of people want to be physically intimate with their partners. They want to be connected. They want that in love feeling. And that's really what it means for love and sex to come together in intimacy. But it takes a willingness and a risk to connect. And it seems like that's not really happening very much anymore. So to help tease out why this is becoming a greater problem for us today, I'm joined by clinical psychologist Dr. Brandy Angler. She's the author of two books, The Women on My Couch and The Men on My Couch. And I love those titles. <laughs> and I'm sure they're very, very different, um, provide very different perspectives. But I'm so glad that you could be on the show today. Thanks for having me. And part of the reason and how I found you was um, I read I, I read stuff on the Internet all the time, and I came across your article, What's Love Got to Do With It? And in this article, you connect the prevalence, the high prevalence today of low libido, not no desire for sex, with alienation. And can you mm-hmm. kind of explain that a little bit? Yes, I think this is a very interesting symptom that uh, therapists are probably seeing across the country. And we usually associate low libido with couples that have been married perhaps for a long time, um, or one person or one or both people are somehow sexually repressed. And we often connect it with, you know, a history of there being some kind of religious oppression of sexuality that they have to get over or trauma or something like that. But what we're seeing now is just age. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it has the libido either decreases or increases with age, right? Right, right, right. And so those are those are the, the factors that therapists are trained to kind of look for or often see. But there's something new happening in the younger generation that I think is really important to talk about. And in particular, my private practice is in Los Angeles and kind of a hipster neighborhood. And my pra- the demographic that I see is typically people in their 20s and 30s, a lot of them who are single but also couples. And in these single people, we should be having a lot of sex, right? <laughs> should be having a lot of sex, and this is a this is an, a very urban, um, secular, liberal kind of crowd that comes in, and these are people who feel entitled to pleasure and adventure. They're not repressed, um, and so you would assume that they are sexually actualizing, having lots of sex, and really enjoying themselves. But instead, what I'm seeing is women and men in equal numbers coming in reporting low libido. And it doesn't matter if they're single. They might be single and they'll be having some sex and then kind of lose their libido quickly with a new sexual partner or just young couples who are coming in with low libido, and and often it's the male. So we're seeing 
cases of low libido, but they're not the stereotypical kinds of cases. And so I think that kind of leads to the question, well, why is it happening in this crowd? And so I think one of the things we see in here, I'll, I'll just give you an example of a client that I had just this week that is just the typical client. It's a young woman. She's single. And she meets a new guy, and she they're starting to be sexually active. And as she's talking to me about being sexually active with him, her face is just glowing. She's grinning. You can tell that she's excited about him, and she likes him, and she's enjoying herself. But then she told him that she doesn't want to have any emotions and that she put right out there right away that there's going to be no love and no emotions, this is going to be just sex. And so I sort of, you know, as I'm talking to her, I'm like, but what is this look on your face? What is this glowing, <laughs> sort of excited look? And so she's clearly, like, repressing her own spontaneous, like, emotions that she's having. Because in Which her mind... really backwards, because what well, we were taught right. years ago, of my generation, we want to repress the physical sexual desire, not the love, and now it seems like we're flipping it. It's the opposite. Now it's repressing the love, and it's a very inauthentic thing that she's trying to do. It's like she's sort of pushing this idea on herself that she is not supposed to love and that she, this is, should be just physical and casual. And I think that the, the mistake here is that she's associating this with empowerment. The idea for her is that she has some kind of power if she is having sex that has no emotion in it. Um, but I could just see the anxiety also right there, um, mm-hmm. you know, because she's really, so we were sort of unraveling like what, what she's scared of and it's, she doesn't want to, it's sort of like you're saying, she doesn't want to take the risk for real intimacy, even though she clearly wants it. Yeah, and you, I see this a lot in varying things that it's turned into an either or as opposed to a both and. It's It's like, where does this idea come from that somehow love is disempowering? You kind of you you talk about one of uh, one of your clients in the article, and again, it, it, the same idea of poo-pooing love and only weak people fall in love, and mm-hmm. I'm stronger than that. And where is this idea coming from? Right, I, I I do think that people are interpreting their own vulnerability as weakness. And the what I try and tell them is, you know, if you want to have, if you want to choose to have casual sex, it's not that casual sex is bad, but are you going to choose to approach casual sex with a closed heart or an open heart? If you have a closed heart, then there's you're going to shut down all emotions, and you're, you're really doing is something quite mechanical. And so, of course, you're going to feel a vague dissatisfaction afterward or an emptiness or a hollowness. This is the language a lot of my clients are using to describe what, what they're feeling. It's mm-hmm. like, it's like dancing without music. You know, there's like, so, so, or you can choose to approach it with whatever emotion you have, which is I'm excited about this person or I'm really attracted and I'm going to let them see that. And I'm not going to hide my attraction. I'm going to let all of those feelings kind of come out, whatever yearnings are in there. Um, and that's approaching it from an open-hearted position. And you can do that without attaching to a goal, like I have to get this person to commit to me or they have to be my boyfriend or girlfriend or anything that has to happen. Um, and you can also approach it without ego, like I'm doing this just to conquer somebody or for the status of having sex with as many people as I can. If you do it from, you can have casual sex from a humanistic place, which is recognizing the humanity in the other person, 
right? And you can, you, there's a very loving way to, to be present and to do that. But what, what, you know, clients like the one I just described are doing is, the, is they're treating the other person as if they're not human. They're just like sort of this, this like object. And the other person feels that. The other person can sense that. And so I see, I see this happening in therapy that, you know, with the person who's doing it thinking I'm in power and I'm having sex with all these people. And I see the people they're having sex with too in therapy who are feeling used, you know, whether it's a man or a woman. So is this what you meant in the article when you said that there's an ex- existential crisis around sex? Is it is this this split that we're seeing that I can engage with you physically but that's as far as I'm going to go. There's no, there's no emotional or or human connection. I don't even want to call it emotional because that that brings in a whole other realm of things. But just right. a human connection. Yes. Well, that's what I meant in the article when I was talking about sort of a pervasive sense of alienation. That it's like a vague sense that people are reporting that they don't have really have all the words for just yet that I'm trying to sort of help them put together, like, what is this experience for you? But when I talk about the existential crisis, it's more that if you if you look, you know, across the past hundred years, as society has separated itself from, you know, the old attachments we had around what sex should or shouldn't be, often involving religion, um, it's become more of this blank space. Like, well, in the absence of those shoulds and should nots, what does sex mean to me? What do I want it to be? And I don't think people necessarily have an answer for that or they're kind of all over the place. I like to ask that question, actually, um, to all of my clients. A lot of people don't know quite how to answer it, which I think is interesting. Well, um, and I'm wondering if the prevalence of pornography, and uh, and again, I'm not taking a moralistic stance on whether it's good, bad, or otherwise, but that's how sex is really kind of portrayed in a lot of pornography is anonymous and un, and disconnected and it's all about the sex organs and there's no, not all pornography, but in a lot of pornography, there's not a lot of connection between the two people engaged in the sexual act. Are you seeing that as potentially a reason or is that just completely... Well, Well, the pornography, just along with um, the sort of where sex therapy itself has been with the Masters and Johnson, which are, you know, what most sex therapists were trained on their theories, which focus very much on physical pleasure and sensation. And the same thing with pornography. It's sort of like it's sort of like titillating somebody to have a lot of to be focused on physical pleasure and sensation. But what all of that sort of leaves out is is an important part of sex, which is like the sort of like the soul in a way. And that's why in the article I had to sort of start referencing poets and uh, writers like D.H. Lawrence, because psychology doesn't really have language for for the experience of soul. Um, But I wanted to try and capture that in some way. Like D.H. Lawrence says that there's an instinct of the soul to bring some kind of love to a situation. It's, it's that the sex isn't just this biological, physical urge, that it's something, it's larger than that, that we're, that we're both pornography and in some way sex therapy is trying to isolate sex as this very physical, mechanical thing that it's just not capturing what it is. 
Well, do you see some of the emphasis? Because my, my two children, I have a son who's 23 and my daughter is 20. So they're kind of heading into this, they're of this generation. And, um, you know, very much on, well, my daughter especially, very much on Facebook, social media, my son not so much. But this idea that we're friends with all of these people, but they're not really friends. I was, I was at something uh presentation several years ago and this this older man probably in his 40s was talking to a younger kid in 1920 at lunch you know he notices the kids doing something with his hand while they're having lunch and he's asking the kid what's he do what's he's doing and 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 the young man says oh i'm texting with 30 of my friends and the immediate thought i had in my head is those are acquaintances not friends mm-hmm. right <laughs> that was i mean that was like my immediate because you can't be connecting with 30 different people intimately, and I don't, I don't mean that sexually, but I mean personally, one-to-one, all at the same time. That's, it's not mm-hmm. possible to carry on 30 different conversations and have right. any of those conversations be meaningful. So right. is this disconnect running through the whole, that whole generation, and I'm obviously speaking in generalities. It's, it's yeah. Yes, we're going to find exceptions, and I'm not you, knocking the millennials you know what? in any way. I don't, I don't know, but I do. I, I both see that, like, I do see in my practice a pervasive feeling of disconnect and of loneliness. Um, and I don't know that everyone understands why it's happening to them. I think a lot of people personalize and think there's something wrong with them socially, but mm-hmm. because I see so many people, everyone thinking the same thing. Right. Um, but but when, two, when, when human beings connect deeply, like you're looking at each other, you're making eye contact, there's touch, there is curiosity and questions and deep listening and sharing of stories, the feeling that goes along with that is a is a deep sense of fulfillment. There's a there's a warmth, there's a fullness in the chest. It's a very particular feeling that we have. And I think that when we're not connecting, there's an emptiness, there's a hollowness, there's an ache and a yearning, a sense something is missing, like a nagging sense. And that's what I hear a lot of people reporting, but it's almost as if they're going through motions of superficial intimacy, like almost like a simulated intimacy that isn't the real thing. And sometimes, mm-hmm. and sometimes maybe that's what's happening, perhaps, you know, like on Twitter um, or something, well, you know, I, same thing with porn. It's not, I mean, porn is often used in lieu of in, real intimacy. It's like, you know, people are using it to gratify a sexual need because they have anxiety about making real connections. I mean, I definitely mm-hmm. see a lot of that. Well, and I think that's also behind what happens with a lot of the couples that I see who have grown apart and, you know, they're on the surface, they're a connected unit, they're a couple, but below the surface, they're hardly interacting in any deeper way at all. And I think that's really kind of what drives them to seek help with me as well. Um, mm-hmm. This is Happily Ever After is just the beginning on webtalkradio.net. I'm Leslie Dorries, and I'm talking with Dr. Brandy Engler, clinical psychologist and author, about the challenges of sex and intimacy for individuals and couples in today's world. And, you know, if you're feeling disconnected, as we're talking about, this is happening all over the place. And human beings really have this desire to connect with each other. So if you're looking to do that, then I invite you to give me a call or shoot me an email and take advantage of my free, no-obligation 
create your kick-ass relationship brainstorming session, you can reach me at Leslie, L-E-S-L-I, at foundationscoachingnc.com, or you can reach me by phone, 919-924-0463. And so, Brandy, you talked about, and I highly encourage people to go read this article. It's on Psychology Tomorrow magazine, and it's called What's Love Got to Do With It? Because you do bring in some really terrific examples of literature. D.H. Lawrence, Viktor Frankl, you've got some other people in there that is, it really brings this to point and that one of the things that you talk about is this disconnect between the mind, the body, and the heart, and it's really apparent when it comes to sex and intimacy. So why do you think that's happened? I mean, <laughs> I think, well, I think, I think that it's been certainly socialized for men, um, you know, when they're, when they're teenagers. I think that they get those messages early on that they um, are supposed to separate sex and love and treat sex sort of like as a conquest. Um, and then what I see with the men who come in therapy is somewhere in their late 20s, early 30s as they're settling down, they're coming in because they feel that they need to integrate the sex and love because they're settling down in their life. They want to get married or they have a partner and they want to integrate those things and they're you know, sometimes having challenges doing that because they've been trained for so long um, to separate. separate. Right, and I think that, I don't know, my guess is that women have kind of picked up that idea a little bit later on, perhaps, perhaps again, perceiving it um, as some kind of power to separate uh, sex and love. Well, and, you know, it's, you do see this in the media and all over the place where there is this disconnect. I mean, yes, we do have our romantic comedies, and those are all great, and they're wonderful, but like the reality shows, I mean, something as supposedly romantic as The Bachelor is really not about connecting on an emotional level. I mean, how? what's the time frame? I mean, you know, these people are suddenly in love and they're not really, and that's one of the better quote-unquote ones if you're talking about relationships. But again, it's surface and not really real and the connections that are being made and but this is what this is what our society is putting out there as this is the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> I'm like, no, stop. Right. But right. Seeing, but but then people come in and they and they're feeling that something is really wrong with that. How do we get how do we get people back on track? Not that you right. and I, I you and I are going to change society right now. So right. Well, I mean, when D.H. Lawrence saw this, it was in the 1920s. It was during the first sexual revolution when the sort of Mm -hmm. flappers became sexually liberated. So what he said was, these are just what we're seeing on reality TV today. These are just cultural ideas. They're not it's not truth. It's not Mm -hmm. nor is it like some kind of correct path. It's just simply like a cultural idea of the moment. And what you and I are witnessing is just like, okay, these are the effects of it. You know, these are the effects. This is what this is, you know, some of the people. Yes, people get a lot of ego gratification and there's a euphoria to that. But beyond that's short lived. And so beyond that, people start to feel the disconnection. So I actually what I use in my practice is 
something very simple, which is, is just a very a mindful approach. And the reason I like mindfulness in sex is that it helps people to stay present, um, actually see the other person, um, actually when you touch the other person to try and feel them, to try and know them, and to try and tolerate your own vulnerability and to be aware of your own, like, longings for connection um, and to, to allow that to come forth and allow yourself to share that. And it takes a little bit of practice not to get anxious or to decide that that's weak, you know, rather instead I uh-huh. teach them to see that as, as strength and that our own sort of loving kindness that's inside of us feels actually, if you let yourself feel it, stable, it feels strong, um, and it's pleasurable. And so whether or not somebody loves you back or whether or not somebody rejects you, you still have integrity for loving and you still got to enjoy the experience of loving And so if people can just relax their egos a little bit, they can still approach whatever they're doing from that place where they're allowing love to be palpable. And when love is visceral and palpable, other people feel that and respond to it. And then it becomes much more complete, and you actually have the chance of experiencing that longer-lasting you know, connection because, you know, what, what I get couples in and I talk to them about intimacy and vulnerability and I'm one of these weird people who, and I was glad to hear Brene Brown's TED Talk because it's like, oh my gosh, I'm not crazy. When I talk about the ability to be vulnerable, you really have to be strong. You are not a weak person if you allow somebody else to, to be with you in your vulnerability. That takes a tremendous amount of strength. And when I talk with my couples and they say they want the, this deep intimacy, and I said, well, then you have to be vulnerable. And they go, well, no, I, you know, because I don't want to be hurt. And I said, well, those two go hand in hand, intimacy mm-hmm. and the risk of being hurt. You can't have one without the other. And and this seems to be a really novel concept when I bring this up, and a very scary one, because we're told we have to be strong and you know hold ourselves apart, not share these deeper thoughts. But then we can't connect on that deeper level, which I think um, and D. H. Lawrence put so wonderfully in that we want to connect, or even Viktor Frankl, that happiness is finding meaning. It's right. not this superficial kind of connection. And we right. It, it's this, not taking all meaning out, like purposefully taking all meaning away, like stripping it away. Um, yeah. Which is what you said when you were describing your, your first client as, well, I want to have sex without any kind of emotional connection. And... It, for me, when that's sort of how I define the difference between sex and making love is that sex is about me and my pleasure and you know what I can get out of it, and making love is about you and us and both of you know <laughs> and mm-hmm. recognizing that this is something we're doing together and right. like you, I don't have any problem with if somebody wants to have casual sex fine, no problem there's there's no moral judgment here. But it's wanting casual sex and no connection, but still feel like you belong. Which is like, how do you even, how do you even hold those two thoughts in your head at the same time? They're not possible. Right. Right. 
so are you seeing the, with the people who come to you? Are you seeing that they're getting it? Are you seeing that they're recognizing that? true empowerment is actually opening up yourself to your humanity and the other people's humanity? Are, are people seeing they this? They are, and some, sometimes they're even getting it before they come in. Sometimes they're coming in because they're starting to get it on their own. Um, and it's interesting when I have couples come in, I mean, I think in the old school sex therapy, you know, you might try various kinds of erotic role play to spice up a libido. And... Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I've watched in in my early years as a sex therapist those techniques not work, and then I'd be sort of confused that they that they weren't working. Like, wait, that's supposed to work, yeah, yeah, and you can see that in some of the like role play stuff and the sort of play, as like D. H. Lawrence calls it. He's like so offended that someone would profane this profound soul experience with the word play. Um, But if they like would do these sort of playful things where they're taking on roles, they're still feeling kind of disconnected. And I think it's because they're not meeting as you and I actually meeting each other. You're like taking on a role of something else. Um, and I, th- I sometimes I think that's, that's why it wasn't working because you need to have a foundation of like, okay, let's actually see each other and try and have some kind of exchange here, whether it's an exchange of sexual fantasy or an exchange of let's see each other and love each other, exchange of something where you're not just mm-hmm. like, doing something to somebody. Um, And I think, so that's why I sort of moved away from that stuff over the years into like the foundations of like, how do you just be present and see another person with the very basic, what do I feel? How do I express that non-verbally through sex? How do I kiss Mm -hmm. deeply? How do I look in someone's eyes? How do I touch differently? How do I become more vulnerable? And that could be integrated with, with the erotic. I had a couple just the other day who... I had them each write a small, like, erotic love story about their partner. In session, they each wrote a little paragraph. And then I had them, Mm -hmm. I walked out of the room and had them read it to each other. And when I came back, one of them was crying. And I asked what Mm -hmm. the tears were. And she said that she felt vulnerable saying it out, reading her yearnings out loud to him. And Mm -hmm. so the most powerful part of that intervention was that she had to access her vulnerability and and to let him see it. And that was so hard for her that she cried, but it was also a good a good step. And so those those are the kind of things that I think are are working. And I do think it's important that when we talk about opening up and being vulnerable, that you know it's a safe space, and that's one of the things that that takes a little bit of time. That takes a little bit of getting to know who the other person is so that you know it's safe. I mean, obviously, your, your couple had been together, you know, at least for a little while. Right. Um, and I think that's part of the fear that, you know, I can have this connection without actually opening myself, but then, you're, but then people are finding they can't. And right. then it's, oh, my gosh, how do I be vulnerable? And is it safe? And how do we, right. as a as a couple create that sense of safety where somebody could do the exercise that you gave, not just the writing part of it, which has its own challenge, but the actual sharing of it, which is leaving me open to be judged. Right. Well, I talk a lot about this in my book, actually, because 
you make a good point. Um, you know, any any two people who come together sexually are often approaching sex from a very different place because there's mm-hmm. an infinite way. Like, you know, one person can feel this very have this very romantic idea of sex, and another person might be into like S and M or something, right? Imagine those two people mm-hmm. coming together, deciding to share themselves. You know, one might find the other's sexuality threatening or not mm-hmm. understand somebody else's sexuality and be judgmental. Um, there's there's a lot of ways that people's sexual styles can chafe up against each other. And sure. I'm actually very interested in how people negotiate that, how people can create safe space so they can, because there is some, an opportunity for intimacy and sharing that stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely think that's a very important modern modern dilemma because when we don't as a society have one shared meaning for sex, which we shouldn't, right? But then we right. have a million different approaches that, you know, just need to be negotiated. Well, and to be honest, I'm not sure there ever has been one shared view of sex. I think there's been a multiple attempts over the centuries to impose that, but I, but none of, as you were saying, you know, D.H. Lawrence wrote Lady Chatterley's Lover in the 1920s, so it's like, mm-hmm. but it's, it, it is just as meaningful today as it was then, and we could probably go back, you know, even 50, 100 years before him, and somebody else wrote you know, something, I mean, how old's the Kama Sutra? I mean, these these right. things have been around for a really long time. And it, the old way, and, and I'm with you, I don't think it was a good way, was everybody had to follow the rules, and if you didn't follow the rules, there was there were serious consequences. Um, but now there are no rules, which is almost just as bad as having too many. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's interesting. And the, but but to me, to me the empowering thing and the cool thing is because there are no rules, then I get to explore myself. But then that's really scary because what if I put it out there and nobody else wants it? Right. <laughs> so right. It's, it's it's this it. it you know, it's this flip side. So right. you know, this I mean, this is a fantastic conversation, but can you tell people where they can find you and find this yeah. article, which I think is fantastic? Yeah, so um, the article is on psychologytomorrow.com, and I can be found on Twitter and Facebook at The Men on My Couch, which is my first book. And um, both my books are collections of essays, um, so they're nonfiction where I uh, just tell stories about what modern people are mostly talking about um, in therapy when it comes to sex and relationships. And then there's the womenonmycouch.com if people are interested in um, what women are talking about. And I try and really capture the nuances of everything we're talking about today, all the gray areas of modern sexuality, the ethical dilemmas, the the existential issues that come around, um, finding yourself, how to find yourself in a climate where, you know, creating meaning is kind of overwhelming. Um, so, yeah, so, um, and then if anyone's in the Los Angeles area, I'm at silverlakepsychology.com. That's my uh, private practice. Well, terrific. And, you know, a lot of people think that love is just a feeling, but 
you and I know it's so much more than that. It's a mindset, a way of being, and it can be expressed in oh so many different ways. And real love is always about both you and someone else. It's about that deeper connection. And I think this is why people get so confused about sex. It can feel both necessary and unfulfilling at the same time. And the question we all have to ask ourselves is, what do we believe about love? What gets in our way of really connecting with our other people, especially our partner? And more to the point, what are we willing to do to change that? So keep listening for more ideas on how to do this. And until next week, stay loving.